Hi, welcome to Culture Determined. I'm your host, R.A. Cohen Wade, and my guest today is a familiar face, uh, Kat Rosenfield. Kat, welcome back, and can you please introduce yourself? Hi, well, um, thanks so much for having me, and yes, I'm Kat Rosenfield, freelance writer, novelist, uh, owner of an extremely determined interrupting cat, former blogging heads entity, and uh, girl about town. And so you are a ho the host co-host of Feminine Chaos, which formerly was on the blogging platform and now continues on an indep independent platform. Um, and so people can, if people maybe didn't realize that you left the platform, wondering where you are, they can still they can subscribe to that. It's it's uh, episodes are on early on Patreon and you get bonus stuff. And then there's the public feed also. So the links to those things will will be below. And um, but we're here to talk about uh, your new novel, which I'm holding, I'm holding up to the camera right now. No one will miss her. Um, and so thank you for coming on. And I, I just finished the book last night and enjoyed it a lot. Um, and so for maybe people who remember you from the site talking about culture and politics and gender relations and so forth, um, uh, you have you all, you before that were a writer of primarily young adult fiction or um as well and, and this is your first but is it adult or what is what is it my first my first solo adult okay. novel um prior to this i collaborated with stan lee on an adult novel called a trick of light and um but you know that was something i did with him and this is just me so yeah but before that i i published two young adult novels um, before being sort of excommunicated from YA, and uh, now I'm I'm trying my hand at something a little bit more grown up. Yeah, I think you've succeeded. And yeah, the first the um the piece that you wrote in New York Magazine, right, about YA Twitter toxic YA, um, was the first time you came on Blungians, I think, um, about in 2017 or so. Um, but you left you left that strange world behind, and so so this book. Um, what, do you have a, you must have a sort of a one or two line summary of, of yes, it? we're calling it a uh, gone girl for the gig economy. <laughs> the cat, the cat wants to make his presence down. You know, the cats may be upset about the part of the book where I, you know, viciously wrote on the page, a cat. Murder. Yeah. Um, yeah. Maybe we'll talk about he that. To, <laughs> no, no, no yeah, we, we can talk about that. That's not like a huge spoiler. Um, but yeah, Gone Girl for the Gig, uh, gig Economy. Uh, basically, the idea is, you know, to kind of explore the transactional relationships that we, in particular, that women have with each other um, in our present moment and how that impacts our conception of self. Um, there's also some questions of identity and um, sort of public face in there, whether it's identity that you are assigned by reputation or one that you project yourself online. So a lot of the same stuff that I like to kind of cover as a cultural writer and journalist, um, I would say that this book is sort of exploring that from a different angle. That's interesting. Um, and yeah, I felt like there were influences of also, so like a, so the sort of a Hitchcock influence I felt. Um, that was in there and some Gone Girl also. I, I'm not a huge reader of thrillers, but I did read Gone Girl. And um and you know, this is yeah, definitely a page turner and has, you know, well we'll talk about the narrator, but um yeah, female main characters and 
Um, and a twist, but we will not spoil the twist, of course. We will possibly allude, allude to, to a twist that uh, got, caught me um, unawares. Um, okay, do you want to maybe just even read the first line? You probably know the first line by memory. Which, the first line is very striking. My first line is, my name is Lizzie Willette, and if you're reading this, I'm already dead. Yeah, so how did... How did you start at that point? That's that's a great first line. And, you know, I think anyone who hears that wants to know what's going to come next. And it's Willette? That's that's the character's last name? Willette, yeah. It's uh, up, up in the, uh, the wilds of Maine there. You have a pretty strong French-Canadian influence, um, or just French, I guess. And uh, so there's lots of um, French surnames there. Okay, so... And I think I alluded to the fact that I started reading this and it almost like blew my mind the first time I started reading it. I had to stop and go back to it because I was like, what is, what does this mean? I'm already dead. And then I was thinking things about, uh, you know, uh, narrators beyond the grave and, or did she write this down? And it's, it's a found manuscript or something. And it was, uh, too, it boggled my mind so much that I had to re take a break and return to it. But um, how did you, how do you, um, well, what, you know, when you were writing this, which sort of parts came first? The, the, the plot, the characters, the setting, what were, how did, how did this come together for you? Um, so the sort of fundamental, like, what the fuck moment, um, that you reach about midway through the book is the thing that I was building on and toward, you know, it sort of began with what if a book where this happened? What if a story where this happens? Um, and from there, you know, I had um, instantly these two couples in mind um, whose lives intersect in interesting and eventually catastrophic and tragic ways. Um, and from there, you know, I'm trying to think, I think the setting was one of the that came later, but it was very pivotal to this story taking the shape that it did. Once I decided that it was going to be in rural New England, um, a lot of other things kind of came into play. Um, you know, things about the the lifestyle of a place like that, um, things like the opioid crisis that's affecting rural areas in um, New England, upstate New York, Cape Cod, um, places like that. So, yeah, you know, it, um, it started with, you know, with the one idea and then it just sort of bloomed out from there. Um, and the decision to have Lizzie narrate from beyond the grave, um, you know, I partly, you know, a, a dead narrator can get away with certain things that a living one cannot. Um, but I just sort of loved her voice once I started writing in it. Uh, I was just, you know, I felt like she was really close by and accessible and kind of fun so that even if you weren't sure if she was telling you the truth, um, you know, you would enjoy listening to her tell her story. Um, so did this, so we mentioned before you previously wrote in young adult, the young adult genre and then sort of <laughs> left that behind, maybe burn the bridges. I don't know. Did you, was this, did, were you thinking I want to write? For the an adult audience now, and then this came to you, or how did um how did that shift happen? And and also like what is what were the differences between writing for an adult audience and writing for a young adult audience? 
There's not really a huge difference in terms of, you know, for me, um, when I was writing YA, I got into it at sort of this peak YA moment. I don't know if you remember, like, back in 2010 to 2012, basically everybody was suddenly reading young adult novels and, like, all of the adaptations that were happening in Hollywood, it was all YA. Mm -hmm. That's when Hunger Games came out. Yes, exactly, exactly. So um, at that time, there was just this sense of, incredible possibility in young adult fiction you could really you could be very experimental you could write stuff that was very literary you could explore very mature themes as long as your characters were teenagers and excuse me that was how I sort of ended up in that space that was the point at which I ended up in that space I wasn't intending when I started writing my first novel that it was going to be a young adult novel but then the character the main character ended up being um, a teenager she's 18 and she's just graduated high school so um just by dint of that at the time that made it a young adult novel. And I was writing um, for an editor who did a lot of work with more literary authors. John Green was one of her authors, Nova Rensuma, Jandy Nelson. So we were all kind of occupying this little sphere together, you know, doing stuff that was more adult thematically, um, but was just being written for teenagers. And so I would say, you know, there are certain things that you can't do in YA, like you're not supposed to curse quite as much. You're not supposed to include sexually explicit content. I was able to be much more frank in this novel than I, you know, about um, about sex. And I guess probably in terms of um, including like gore. Not that there's a ton of it, but there's a little. Yeah, there's. I was actually. I, I mean, as a not not a non thriller reader generally, I was sort of surprised by some of the. Corey's one moment in particular, um, which maybe you know, we can think, guess what I'm thinking of, but we, we don't need to discuss. Uh, but it happens towards the beginning. Um, yeah, there's some, definitely some gory parts. The garbage disposal. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, what can I say? I just kind of, I wanted, I wanted people to know what they were getting into. Um, but, you know, I didn't intentionally leave YA behind. I wouldn't say that I burned bridges. Um, I, I obviously did not make a ton of friends by reporting um, truthfully, but in a way that was, um, you know, not necessarily flattering to certain people in the community about the dynamics that were starting to take hold there, Um, which I did just because it was so interesting. You know, I happened to be a fly on the wall at the time when a lot of this stuff was kind of emerging and and the, you know, uh, the discourse in that arena was getting pretty wild and I was like this is you know this is worth discussing especially because of um the impact it was having on the actual teens for whom we were supposed to be writing and you know ostensibly for whom we cared a great deal um that said you know I also ended up I think I think I would have ended up moving away from YA um anyway because I did always want to write for adults And because the sort of openness of that literary space um, stopped being as much of a thing as peak YA passed us by and suddenly there was less opportunity and there was less money. And um, completely apart from the fact that a lot of the fiction being greenlit um, starting around, I want to say like 2015, 2016, was sort of more explicitly political in certain ways um, than... Uh, than what I wanted to write. Um, yeah, I just think, you know, the, it, was, it was starting to kind of close up um, and there was just less room to do the kind of work that I wanted to do there. The main character, Lizzie, who is the narrator, um, 
from the very uh, very start and you have cha- uh, chapters that differ in narration um how did uh, tell us about this character and sort of how did how did she come to you so lizzie Lillette is our our only person narrator um she's dead at the start of the book um She is um, no, narrating from beyond the grave, describing uh, the history of her marriage, um, her relationships with people in this small town where she's always lived, uh, where she's always been sort of a pariah, an outsider, somebody who people loathed because they needed someone to hate. Um, she ha- uh was renting out her lake house. It was, um, you know, one of these one of these few perks of living in this town was having property on this lake. Um, and she, unlike a lot of people in town, was willing to rent to outsiders. As a fun fact about rural New England, if um, you know, a lot of rural areas that have a sort of a large uh, money summer population are already mistrustful of outsiders. But in Maine, specifically, if um, somebody is not from the town that, that you're in, then there's referred to as from away. It's like this very suspicious kind of uh, attitude towards outsiders. So Lizzie is uh, one of the few people who's willing to put her property on the internet um, and rent to people who are from away. And she does this uh, and, and ends up um, crossing paths with the Richards specifically a woman named Adrienne Richards, who's an influencer and the wife of this disgraced billionaire who um, almost went to prison, but didn't for a sort of a Bernie Madoff style financial scheme. So um, yeah, you know, Lizzie's like, she's trailer trash. uh, And she's pretty upfront about that uh, the entire time that you are hearing her story. And so she tells you in this very straightforward way, um, you know, how she ended up dead on the floor of the lake house that she was renting to this couple from out of town. And, okay, so did you, um, well, how did you, so we'll talk about the setting a little bit, what you mentioned. So you you live in New England, but sort of uh, southern New England. And how did, why did you decide uh, on Maine as the main setting? Also, some scenes take place in Boston, right? Um, when they return to where the wealthy couple lives. Um, hey, how did you decide? I mean, you know, Stephen King has claimed Maine or Royal Maine in some respects. Um, how did you decide to to? Set Stephen King there? doesn't own Maine, all right. This doesn't belong <laughs> to him. Um, but uh, Maine is a a great setting for an, a couple of different reasons. I mean, one, it's just a a really interesting place. Um, the sort of community dynamics that rule, especially in its small towns, are really interesting. Um, it's right on, you know, the, a substantial portion of the Appalachian Trail runs through there. So, um, you know, in addition to being a sort of a vacation setting for a lot of money to people, you just have a lot of kind of transient folks coming through, um, which is an interesting thing, an interesting dynamic to have in a place that is relatively suspicious of, you know, non-Mainers. And, um, I spent a lot of time in Maine throughout my life, uh, been going there every year since I was a kid. Uh, both sets of grandparents lived in Maine. And um, let's see, what else were we talking about? Oh, the um, the reason to set it there. Oh, but another thing about Maine that is interesting is that if you get enough into the hinterlands, and this is useful for thriller writers, there are places still where there is no cell phone service. Um, just 
like zero bars. And since <laughs> one of the things that is a big challenge if you're writing contemporary thrillers is constantly trying to find ways for people to like lose their cell phones or not have access to them. Um, because, you know, unfortunately it would solve a lot of problems that we try to create as thriller writers. Um, you know, setting, <laughs> setting your story in Maine is one way to kind of get around that little obstacle. Yeah, I was I just recently was listening to a podcast where they were talking about this, how so many classic plot lines, even, you know, of thrillers or movies from the 80s or sitcoms from the 90s. You know, how many Seinfeld plot lines could have been um, if there if there have been cell phones then the, uh, you know, the core uh, difficulty would have easily been surmounted. So. Um, so, OK, that makes sense. And. Um, OK, so you felt like this, the character Lizzie um, sort of she was the strongest one that came to you were always thinking that she's going to be the narrator um for uh or how did you decide how like how the sort of the structure of how this how, how you're going to tell the story you know i like to play with different perspectives in um in all of my work i i think that i'm trying to think if i've ever written a book that didn't have multiple different narrators and different I don't think I have. I just it's it's something that I really like to do as a writer um, to, you know, it's an opportunity to play with different voices. Um, and also, you know, by having multiple narrators, it allows you to, in some cases, uh, shield certain information from the reader. But also it allows you to let the reader in on things that, you know, this is kind of an omniscient perspective that they wouldn't otherwise have or that like other characters in the book don't have so that they can ultimately see how everything kind of pans out. And and works together, um, you know, and they have information that is not necessarily available to the people in the book that they're reading. So um, as far as Lizzie being the narrator, she's just a lot of fun. You know, I, I think that, um, you know, if, if anybody was going to be telling this story in the first person, it should be her. Mm -hmm. And so you have a the the timeline uh the book takes takes place in the fall 2018 right like there you have specific dates that are mentioned and so you also have like you said there's a one of the characters is an instagram influencer and um uh internet access and listing uh listing a summer property on airbnb plays a role how did how did you decide that you weren't going to set this in sort of the eternal present or or maybe not you know, in 2007 or something, uh, did the, did that, the 2018, uh, how, how did you make that specific choice? Um, I'm trying to think about this. I ultimately, I, I knew that I wanted baseball to play a certain amount of a role in this story. Um, baseball intervenes to make certain things possible within the story uh, without you know, mm -hmm. spoiling anything. So um, I spent a lot of time sort of looking, um, let's see, I definitely, I definitely needed a moment in the recent past when there was like a really kind of um, serious matchup in the like American League division series. So it would have been the Yankees versus the Red Sox. Basically I needed, I needed that, game and rather than just inventing one i was like all right i'm gonna just i'm just gonna find it um i remembered watching it and i remembered that it was pretty intense at the time so mm -hmm. 
yeah, you know, so I, I had these sort of existing markers, um, you know, this baseball series that ended up playing a sort of a minor, but still, you know, an important role in the way that the story unfolded. Um, the other thing is that a lot of the thematic um, subjects that I'm tackling, you know, issues of identity, issues of performance, issues of, you know, the transactional relationships that we form with people who are basically paying to do stuff for us. And we imagine that they're our friends, but really it's a completely transactional relationship. All of this is stuff that's really very right now. So to set the story in 2018, as opposed to like, you know, sort of pre-smartphone, um, you know, it just, it allowed me to kind of play with that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and okay, so there's a, a couple of characters we haven't mentioned. Uh, so one is uh, Lizzie's husband, Dwayne, and another is the detective who comes on the scene. He's, he's the state detective, is, is that right? Yeah, he's a state trooper. Right. So he's also an outsider to this very small community and comes in and his name is Ian Bird. Um, the only good talk man a little in the bit book. About... <laughs> Sorry, say that again? I said he's the only good man in the book. <laughs> um, can you, yeah, so talk a little bit about those characters and how you uh, conceive them. Um, so Dwayne, Dwayne's just the worst. Um, you know, I <laughs> He is based on anybody specific, but he's definitely a type of guy. Um, if you've ever spent a lot of time in a small town, you might be sort of familiar with. And then, you know, things that happen in his life conspire to make him even more of a certain type of guy. Um, you know, there's sort of a lot of squandered potential there, but also a sense that it was lucky that he was sort of knocked off of his intended path before he discovered that he couldn't walk it himself. Um, he's, he's just sort of, a, you know, a bad dude. Um, incurious about the world, you know, kind of hates his wife, uh, but needs her, but resents her. Um, not that, you know, he's the only person in the marriage who feels that way. There's a sort of a codependency going on there in certain ways. Um, so that's Dwayne. And then Ian Bird um, basically exists because I needed somebody to investigate this crime who would not necessarily know what was going on. And, um, you know, because police do investigate crimes, even in rural Maine. So, yeah, uh, that's that's basically why he exists. But I got interested in him, um, you know, in terms of he's sort of a he's sort of the closest thing to an avatar for the audience. You know, he's a spectator to everything that's happening. Um, Mm -hmm. So at the start, you know, he and the reader are figuring things out together. Eventually, because the reader has the advantage of, you know, of being inside multiple people's heads, um, the reader figures things out before he does. Right. Um, How did you, uh, how did you, and this could be in general or specific. So a character named Detective Ian Bird, Bird Detective Ian Bird. How do you, how do you pick your names for your fictional creations? Um, it depends on who it is. I don't remember where I came up with Ian Bird's name. I think I, I wanted somebody who sounded like they could be sexy, basically. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, I don't know. Bird is just a a nice name but when i'm setting a story um in a particular location i tend to go and look at 
um, either like not genealogy. What is it where you, you find out who's buried in historic cemeteries? Like if I need a family who's been in the area for a long time, I'll look at you uh-huh. know, the prevalent surnames there. Um, if I'm looking for people who are uh, more contemporaneous, I look at high school basketball rosters um, and I just, oh, you know, okay. I just mix it or like high school sports. It really doesn't have to be basketball, but uh-huh. um, I just mix and match like, you know, uh, from from what's there because I'm really terrible at picking names. So I just have to, you know, I have to find existing human beings to steal first and last names. Okay. And so Willette is a, a, a French Canadian origin. And how did you, so in my head, I, I was saying it, Oulette. And did you think about that? So how do you, yeah, how did you, how do you, you chose a name, obviously, that's somewhat unusual in the English, English speaking America. Uh, why did you make that choice? Um, well, I mean, it's, you know, when people who were, it's this, it's spelled O-U-E-L-E-T-T-E. So um, when people who had that surname left a French inflected region and went somewhere else, they became Willet. W-I-L-L-E-T. Oh, okay. Um, so uh, I, I wanted something that was old school New England, but that also sounded vaguely kind of yokely, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, something that, that um, you know, was tied to that region, you know, going way back, but not in a posh way. Okay. Interesting. Um... So let's see. So the your so Adrian, the influencer character, Adrian Richards, um where did so that how, where did that character come from and if I assume Lizzie came to you first, then you were thinking about a foil or some sort of paired character for the the two female leads of the book. How did um yeah, where did that come from? And is, is that is this based on anyone in your real life or people you've noticed via Instagram or? Uh... I'm not saying that would not be flattering <laughs> to whoever it was. Um, no, I mean, I, I feel like I, I don't really have the best or most interesting answers to these questions. You know, a lot of this stuff where it's like, how did this come to you? It's, you know, I was writing and I thought of it. Um, I mm-hmm. wish that I had a better sense of, of what, you know, what happens somewhere in the back of my brain when I get an idea, but you know, it, a lot of this stuff just seems to kind of manifest out of thin air. Okay. That, yeah. Inspiration, inspiration is mysterious um, when it comes to the arts. So that makes sense. Um, did. Okay. So we mentioned a twist. We will not spoil the twist of course, but when you conceived of there being a twist and then also that this is a book you're going to be talking about, how did you, think about that and i don't know i mean it's it's a good twist it's it's m night Shyamalan in his original iteration worthy i would say um yeah how did you you know how did you think about that or especially because you know it takes a long time to write a novel and people you know it's gestating for a long time and multiple people are seeing it and, and, and stuff like that i feel like we're dancing so close to describing what the twist is i'm like oh, stop <laughs> talking um but so I think, you know, to, to kind of zoom out to a more like, here's how you construct a thriller kind of a discussion. Um, you know, the twist is, in this case, it, it happens midway through the book. So I knew that I was writing towards it. Um, the way that I think of it is as, you know, I'm constructing basically 
a, a labyrinth and there's a monster sitting at the center of it, like the Minotaur. Um, mm-hmm. And you have to create a way through this maze for the reader so that they understand that they're heading towards something. Um, not necessarily that they know exactly where it is. They don't necessarily know that it's in the center, but they know that they're heading towards something. Um, pretty much every thriller includes a twist. And um, so they know it's coming. Savvy readers can and should be able in a well-constructed thriller to anticipate what is going to happen before it happens. You know, they should have the pleasure of figuring it out a little bit ahead of the narrative. Um, People who are very, very savvy thriller readers can probably figure it out in the first chapter, but (laughs) more power to them. Please don't spoil the book. Um, But either way, the idea is, you know, even for people who figured it out right away in the first chapter, you want them to enjoy the journey as they go there. So here you are, you know, writing towards this thing that everybody knows is coming and you know what it is, but you have to keep it obscured and you have to make the journey to that point as interesting as possible so that people aren't getting bored and just, you know, trying to skip ahead to find out what happens. Um, And in this case, you know, you write your way to the twist and then, you know, the reader and the minotaur join hands and wander out of the maze together. So (laughs) (laughs) just to take this metaphor as far as it can possibly go, maybe a little further. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I and I'm not a savvy thriller reader. And so the twist worked effectively on me. And um, yeah, and the sort of constructing a narrative so that the twist I guess some people could anticipate the twist. Other people were taken by surprise. I'm thinking like I never read any Agatha Christie novels until I was like 30 years old. And then I read um, Murder on the Orient Express, which is the most famous one. And spoiler alert, the twist in that one is that everyone is guilty. And that's so that's a famous celebrated twist. And then I was like, oh, this is fun. I'll try another one. And I, I just picked one randomly. And, you know, it was a similar thing with like a dozen or so possible a dead body, a dozen or so possible suspects. And then the the identified in the end the murderer who was identified in the explanation for it was so outlandish that it was like there's no possible way any reader could anticipate this as happening and i felt like wait she just pulled this out of the hat this makes no sense at all and you know adding in details after the fact to explain the logic of it and yeah and you wouldn't have yeah it just it just seemed like she had randomly picked one of the names and then decided afterwards why that person was the murderer i found that very unsatisfying and i did not read any more agatha christie I think that's the thing, you know, if you create a, if you're trying to write a story where people cannot guess, um, you know, who the killer was and you can't go back and say, oh, I see how this was, you know, constructed. If it's just completely out of the blue, people feel really cheated. Um, Even people who complain about being able to guess the twist too soon, they want to be able to do that and they get really angry if they can't. Yeah, yeah, it did feel like the, the, the the genre is such that you are, you know, detective novels or something with a twist you should be sort of like playing detective yourself and being able to possibly put the clues together and then if it's just out of left field if the answer are just out of left field it feels like um yeah you were sort of uh taken for a ride or something um okay i'm trying to think if there's anything else i could ask um what is it like um writing a book like this when you are also a uh, noted cultural writer and commentator and talking head and so forth. Do, do, are, 
how do you see those those roles uh interacting or not interacting uh i think that you know a lot of the same stuff that interests me as a culture writer also interests me as an author of fiction um i'd like to approach the same questions and the same problems i like to kick over the same rocks and be like what's wriggling around under there and so you know i i would say that there's a nice balance for me in being able to do this stuff. The only downside is that I am incredibly busy all the time, but that's not so terrible. Yeah, there. I mean, yeah, there are worse. There, there are worse things uh, <laughs> that one could be. So that's that's pretty good. Um, okay, well, I encourage people to check out the book. I, like I said, I'm not a, a thrill reader usually, but I did quite enjoy it. Um, no one will miss her, and you know, people, and it's. I think it, it went on sale a week ago, so people can find it wherever but we did you you teased before start recording a um but you had read and reviewed um the work of another well-known person who wrote a thriller and that is hillary clinton who published a thriller just just recently like within the past month right um Yeah, they um that's some real counter programming. Um and you know, and I guess like uh Bill Clinton has been writing with James Patterson has been writing novels for a while, and so I guess this is sort of um uh along this similar lines and, and well, I mean you you're sort of in the biz. Like, do, does the famous person actually write the book? Like what is <laughs> how does this actually work? Do they sort of just is it just a branding opportunity? Or is Hillary Clinton sitting down and scratching her head and trying to figure out how the architecture of of her, her novel comes together? How do you what do you think is happening here? Um, let me think about this. I would, you know, just to be clear that I'm completely talking out of my ass right now. I don't know. <laughs> I'm just speculating. Um, mm-hmm. I think most likely what happened is that Clinton and in this case, Louise Penny, who, who was the co-writer on the book, um, spent a bunch of time talking about the idea, the concept, you know, so they had characters, they had a story roughly, um, you know, here's, here's what, here's the frightening thing that is going to happen that, or, or that will happen if our heroes don't manage to stave off disaster. Um, I'm going to just wager um, that the actual writing was, pretty much entirely the veteran thriller writer doing it and not Hillary Clinton attempting to construct a fictional story for the first time in her life, especially one with as many twists and turns as this. Well, there are plenty of people who think she concocted plenty of fictional stories previously about, say, what happened at Benghazi. Oh! <laughs> and, what, and, you know, what and what is happening in the basements of various, you know, pizza parlors, etc. But, um, uh, but... Okay, sorry about that. But um, okay, so yeah, and probably I mean most it probably like Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton with their the the works that they publish, nonfiction works, they probably are working with either a ghostwriter or help from professional writers because they're not professional writers. Maybe maybe Obama is different because he wrote a book before he was famous, but most ex politicians probably are working with someone else. But it is, I mean, what do you make of this genre of like the Politico, who is retired, who starts releasing thrillers that they may or they contributed to in some some amount that we don't quite know. I mean, I think it's fascinating. You know, it's kind of interesting how we have these people who are like 
elder statesmen who retire into a life of making art, sort of. Um, you know, you've got George Bush doing his painting, um, you know, and Obama is a podcast. Right? Yeah, Obama has a podcast. Um, I mean, he's sort of a media mogul, really. Um, and then, yeah, he has like a ne- him and Michelle have a Netflix deal. Yeah, yeah. You have, you know, Bill Clinton is writing his thrillers with James Patterson, which I I mean, the funny thing about these political thrillers by former politicos is that usually the protagonist is an avatar for the author. Um, and in Bill Clinton's case, this means that, you know, it's an ex-president and he's like so cool and virile, even in his dotage, that he's still like having shirtless canoe races with his secret service agent and winning all the time, um, which I think is just a hilarious little bit of wish fulfillment. <laughs> Good on him. I, you know, I hope he makes it real. But um, so Hillary Clinton's uh, novel features, I thought this was interesting. Um, her hero is a female secretary of state who has been tapped to serve in the cabinet of a political rival, much like Clinton was herself. Um, you know, we're talking about wish fulfillment. One of the things that I noted in my review for this book is that, you know, it, I'm sure it took a certain amount of restraint not to make her an ex-president. But the thing that's also <laughs> interesting to me is that it's hard to think of another person who's most famous for losing a presidential election who would then get to go on to have this kind of career, you know, like the ex-presidential career, like Clinton, you know, like George Bush, like Obama. Um, despite not having actually served as president. But Hillary is getting to do this, and I think that is fascinating. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, I, I mean, the person, other person who comes to mind would be Gore, who, after losing in 2000 in a disputed way, you know, started, to, like, eventually made the, an inconvenient truth and, like, you know, um, definitely kept on going in, out, like, working outside the, you know, not an outside game instead of an inside game. Um, what, okay, is, is the book worth reading? Um, if you don't particularly care about Hillary Clinton either way? It's better than Bill's. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I mean, I think it's kind of, I don't know, I mean, is it, is it okay if I, like, say a spoiler about the plot? I don't, I'm not going to read it. So, but if anyone out there is, has it on, you know, their Kindle, uh, just started, you might want to skip ahead. Yeah, sorry, no, sorry, kids. <laughs> um, but the, the thing that is sort of, funny to me is that the um the the big overarching evil plot it turns out to be hatched by americans um who are in power you know in positions of power in the government in the military um in the you know civil sector and and they're so upset about gay marriage and illegal immigration and the lack of prayer in schools that they've decided en masse to stage a coup and to detonate three nuclear bombs in major American cities because they're so upset about gay marriage. It's kind of this progressive fever dream about how like, you know, how backwards um, and destructive the folks on the right are, that they would actually, like, set off nuclear weapons. They would bomb American cities just to get their way, Um, which, yeah, I don't know. I found that a little far-fetched, but also kind of funny in that it seems to kind of indicate, like, this... I mean, almost like a wish to have that person to fight against. It's like, if they don't exist, we have to create them. Okay, that's interesting. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's, um, 
you know, it sounds like she has her own version of the deep state or something that is uh, acting against uh, the interests of all that is good and, you know, glorious about America. But um, it's sort of like a fantasy where, like, you know, if um, January 6th, instead of being what it was, had been like a very well organized, um, like genuine attempt to stage a coup with like an actual plan in place for afterwards and also involved like a lot more um, bombs going off. Like like greater than zero bombs going off. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, it's it's sort of it's sort of like that. Okay. So you so thumbs down overall on the Hillary Clinton. I it's, no, it's it's thriller. a totally like, you know, <laughs> I wouldn't I wouldn't read it for like amazing political insights, but it's a completely serviceable political thriller. And it is a lot less boring, again, than Bill Clinton's books with James Patterson. But I think that has a lot to do with the fact that Louise Penny is just a better writer than James Patterson. Okay. Yeah, I'm not familiar with her. Like I said, I'm not a I don't consume the genre generally. And Patterson I just know because he's one of the most successful uh authors out there and probably he at this point is not even re- writing his own james patterson novels yeah, or something. Probably. um so who, so who knows what his actual involvement is um well that that's interesting yeah it is i mean thinking about why a former politician would embrace this versus something else and i'm also thinking of um a, a piece that um came out a couple weeks ago in the drift by sophie hegney where she reviewed a lot of children's books by either by politicians or about politicians um and she was like these are all horrible like <laughs> like no child wants wants this and i guess it's it's often like purchased as a gift maybe for like a kid you don't know that well or something you'll get them like the elizabeth warren you know um you know kids book and and um and chelsea clinton is the author of one of a series of these called she persisted i think um and so there yeah so ever all the all three members of the Clinton family are, have sort of this you know publishing sideline or something and uh, yeah are these like even really meant to be read primarily or are they more like just a token of tribal affiliation or something you give as a gift and then it like sits <laughs> it sits um unread on the shelf and actually just yesterday and I I posted this on on Twitter I was taking a walk in my neighborhood and, I, and there was a copy of the she persisted um, children's book on the street leaned up against a uh, a fire hydrant that I guess someone had just abandoned mid read and left <laughs> left for someone else to take. Um, and so, um, yeah. So I, I don't know. It it is definitely a strange sort of thing that wasn't happening like twenty or thirty years ago. That I mean, leaving against a fire hydrant seems to me like a statement. I mean, that's basically not an invitation for somebody else to read it so much as it's an invitation for a dog to come pee on it. Yes, that that could be part of it. Um, and it looked unmolested when I saw it, but it could have been placed, you know, mere moments before I, I walked by. Um, but yeah, it's like, who is who is this actually for? But apparently they're, they're, they're super successful. That's why, like, there's this whole new genre of kitty books. And oh, yeah, I would say that the, the children's literature is like you were saying more of a signifier, like, you know, you give that to your friend for her baby shower so that she knows that you're on the right side. Um, right. I would imagine the people who are reading Hillary Clinton's thriller are actually Hillary Clinton fans, you know, um, who just want to kind of support her in, in whatever it is that she's up to next. Yeah, that makes sense. and. 
Yeah, and she did get 67 million votes or whatever. So there's if only one in 100 of those buys the book, then it's a uh, smashing success. Um, yeah, OK, I don't think I will be reading that book anytime soon, but thank you for reading it yourself. And we'll include the link to 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 your review. Where did that where did that publish? Uh, it's in Unheard. OK, um, let's see. Uh, sh- should we wrap it up there? Do you have anything else you want to? mention or plug um oh god yeah no i mean where where could we possibly go after talking about Hillary clinton's book you know i think it (laughs) can't possibly get better than this (laughs) well i guarantee that this book is a more um it'll be a a more exciting read um and there are no nuclear bombs detonated by the deplorables or whatever um in your in your book um so no one will miss her is the book um feminine chaos where, where can people find that oh um we have a patreon uh patreon.com slash feminine chaos we i mean phoebe is currently my my co-host is currently on maternity leave so i'm holding down the fort myself with a series of guests and um sorry situation here uh so we release (laughs) one episode publicly per month and then um either an extended cut of that or two separate um episodes for subscribers so yeah, feel free to check it out. I, I don't consider myself primarily a podcaster, but I am still doing it. You want to listen? Yeah, and the the I think it was the last one you you released was you had Lee Stein, who has been on this program as well, and you were talking about the bad art friend. Yes, yeah, so we, um, we talked about Kidney Gate. We had an actual altruistic kidney donor on to offer some insight, and she really said some incredibly interesting and valuable things. So, um, but yeah, if anybody is looking for information about that topic specifically, I still see it's amazing. This is like, you know, people are still talking about the kidney story. And if if you don't know what we're talking about, I I guess you've been like in a fallout shelter or something for the past three weeks, because this is like the (laughs) first article that's like dominated the discourse that didn't have anything to do with Trump in a long time. But yeah, that was a fascinating conversation and uh, in deep in interesting ways. And the the woman who um, you had on, who also was an altruistic kidney donor, um, it has a film and that I, I feel like I want to check that out uh, when it, when it comes out, because it's definitely a um, interesting topic. Penny Lane, she's great. Um, she has lots and lots of smart things to say about um, not just sort of the psychology of altruistic kidney donors, but about, you know, the, how that community functions, um, you know, lots of insights that gave me certainly a new understanding of what that story was actually about. Yeah. Um, so check that out. And you're on Twitter. And that is just Kat Rosenfield. Yeah. And um, so people should check you out all those places. And your writing appears in various other periodicals, including Unheard. Um, anything else we should mention before wrapping up? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, I don't think so. I apologize for the cat and dog interruptions. But anybody who, you know, who's missed me on blogging heads probably also missed them. <laughs> yes, both. Get your fix. Hello. <laughs> both pets got a cameo. And, you know, I know viewers who don't follow me on Twitter uh, made it notice, but I actually have a cat who I adopted about six months ago, but he is extremely chill and lazy. And so he he has no interest in what I'm doing, talking to the computer screen and does not come and interrupt me. He just sleeps on the bed throughout, which is what he does most of the time. But um, if you uh, like seeing photos of a cute orange cat, you can follow me on Twitter 
RACW. Um, and okay, well, Kat, uh, thank you again. Thanks to our viewers and listeners, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks.